0: Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region.
1: WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset.
2: I just want to leave God
1: protect me, I just want to leave. That's 12-year-old gospel singer, Kidron Bryant, and the powerful protest song that's captured the nation's attention. His mother, Janetta, says she wrote the song in light of the events that unfolded after the death of George Floyd. Floyd was a black man who died after former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was captured on video with his knee on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. Janetta says she wanted to give her son wisdom to live confidently in this world as a young black man. So how do we talk to children and young people about Floyd's death? And how can we tackle conversations about racism, protests and police brutality? Dr. Beverly Tatum is a psychologist and author of Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. Welcome to Reset. Thank you. Thanks very much. Also with us is Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris. She's a physician and researcher at Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago and Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Hurd-Garris, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Hurd-Garris, you have an 8-year-old son. How are you talking to him about what's going on right now?
2: Well, first, I I know this is off script, but I just want to say hi to Dr. Uh, Tatum. She was uh, the Spelman College president while I was there. I'm a Spelmanite, so I'm really delighted to be on the program with her. Um, She is one of the the experts that we look to, so I'm so happy. Uh, For my own son, it has been a challenging conversation because as parents, we are supposed to filter the world for our children. We were supposed to help them make sense of what's going on. And we purposely did not show the video um, of George Floyd's death because I thought it would be too traumatic for him and probably most kids his age. So instead, we we centered our conversation about the history of America and why things are the way they are and why the protests and the civil unrest has kind of unfolded in our city because he's seen buildings, you know, be shut down, roads being closed, and he's asking questions and wondering why.
1: Dr. Tatum, as we just heard there from doctor Hurd Herd-Garris, there's a lot to unpack. Um, How do you start an age-appropriate conversation about racism and police violence with young people? What's a good first step?
0: Well, I think, first of all, I want to say hello to Dr. Herd Garrison. I'm delighted to have a Spelmanite on with me. So that's very exciting. But I um, want to say that, you know, often we can take our cues from the children themselves. So depending on the age, they're going to do different things. But even very young children can express concern about what they see or overhear. Even if they haven't seen the video itself, they might see that adults around them are upset and might ask, mommy, why are you upset? Or, you know, what's going on? And even a small child can be talked to, by small, I mean even four or five years old, can be talked to in terms of what is fair and unfair. And emphasizing that it's important for all of us to work to ensure everyone experiences fairness.
1: Dr. Herdger, something Dr. Tatum just said there really stood out to me. I think it can be our instinct as adults to perhaps try to tap down our emotions, um, to have a very reasoned conversation with children or young people, and I wonder if, if instead there is power and letting them see our upset, and letting them experience our, our deep sadness and grief. Is there some power in that?
2: I definitely think so. I think um, we need to allow ourselves to feel all the feels, experience all the emotions, and really go through that process. I do think it's important that we take care of ourselves So first, before we have the conversation, putting our own oxygen mask on first. So if we need mental health support, we need um, friends to help get us through, I think we need to address that first. But I do think it's important that children see that it affects us, too. Um, An unrelated story, so my son is doing homeschooling and um, said to me, oh, God, I'm so upset that I can't go to school from home and was having a lot of issues with that. And said, you're not affected by this at all. Like, why aren't you sad? And why aren't you, you know, hurt? And so that was a good reminder for me to say, no, this is affecting me too. And so similarly with what we're, we're having right now, I have to say, I'm, I am not happy about what's going on. I am really sad. But I'm trying to do everything I can to make this world a better place for you. And so are a lot of other people.
1: Dr. Tatum, I've been hearing from a lot of white parents asking about how to have these conversations with their children, with their white children specifically. Yes. And (laughs) please feel free to jump right on in.
0: Well, let me just say white children have questions too. And sometimes, um, those questions started at a very young age. You know, a young white child as young as three might notice physical differences, racial skin differences, comment on those differences, and parents often respond by trying to hush them. You know, Shh! is often the most common adult response as opposed to really answering in a direct way a child's question about why someone looks different than they do, et cetera. But um, having said that, Again, I'm going to say children often give the opening, but if a white parent is wanting to start the conversation, they can say, you know, I've been watching the news. I'm really concerned about what's happening in our community. It's important to me that you understand what's going on. Let me tell you something about it.
1: You know, Dr. you said you didn't allow your eight-year-old son to watch the video. We're in a time when, you know, social media is rampant. And if you have a slightly older child who has a phone, has access to, to the Internet, to social media, there's a good chance they'll see it even if you don't want them to. For an older child or a teen who's seen that video and has come away with it with a feeling of trauma or anger, how do you start to talk them through that?
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, if a a child sees that video or any other video, I think the trouble with the internet and social media in this age, it's been able to bring to light all these um, tragedies and things that should be prevented, but they live forever. So, you know, you see George Floyd, but you can also see other videos that are equally disturbing. And I think the important thing is to be able to talk to your kids about what they're seeing or what they've seen and kind of start there because you're not sure the extent of have they seen everything, what was said, what was heard, and so assess what they know. I would start there first um, before you introduce any more information that might be traumatizing to them, and then I would sit down and talk to them about how they're feeling, and I don't think it's a one-off conversation. It's going to be a conversation you're going to have to revisit um, frequently frequently. Um, to make sure that they are able to process and cope with all those feelings because it, it was a really hard video to watch.
1: Dr. Tatum, a lot of what I hear Dr. Hurt Hurt-Garris saying is that parents, while they may feel the need to lead the conversation, a lot of what they may be doing, and I'm going to say parents and adults <laughs> because we mm-hmm. all have young people mm-hmm. in our lives, a lot of what you may actually be doing is asking questions and listening, that that's probably where you need to start.
0: Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, as was said, acknowledging the child's feelings and acknowledging that you too might have similar feelings, but to be able to talk about those feelings, what, you know, what has happened, the unfairness of what has happened. But a point that um, Dr. Garrison made was that it's important to also, in the course of that conversation, let the child know that there are people working to make it better. I'm working to make it better. You know, our family is working to make it better. Our friends are working to make it better because you want to leave the child feeling a sense of hopefulness, even in the midst of this very difficult situation.
1: Mm-hmm. doctor when we when we think about hope and trying to leave young people with a sense of hope and talking to the young people in my life, there is and specifically Black black people, Black young people, there's this deep sense of discouragement because they've heard the stories from their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, and they look at the moment we're in now, and they cannot understand why we're here. And I mean, I get pushed back from them <laughs> when I try to, you know, leave them with a feeling of hope. Mm-hmm. They are dealing with hopelessness. How do you navigate that space?
2: That's right on, and honestly, that's consistent it's with um, the the research as well. Is that when when um, children are exposed to racism, there can be these feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, and despair. And it's understandable that you have those feelings I think you know um, it's natural for adults who have seen been lived through all of these events and then now for young folks to witness and have heard from um, their their parents and their caregivers about what's happened from their lifetime and now to have those feelings we call that secondary exposure, vicarious racism, so that's secondhand racism. And just even like secondhand smoke, you're not the one smoking, but you get all the negative impacts of that, similar to the secondhand racism, that's vicarious racism we're experiencing. One of um, the studies we've been working on is trying to understand what are the coping strategies. And what we've seen so far is being able to talk to a trusted adult, to talking to a parent or caregiver, or someone else that you trust, As well as peers has been really helpful to counteract those feelings of hopelessness and another um big thing that we've seen is the is activism and so generally teens would engage in activism online and posting sharing stories talking to their friends is another way but obviously we've got to make sure they do it and keep themselves safe um while they're expressing their um their beliefs
1: Dr. Tatum, you're an expert in child psychology and race relations, and I want to take this back to really when kids start to form ideas about race. We know when they're very young, they're just sponges. They soak up everything, the good and the bad. So what should parents do when a child has perhaps absorbed something and and maybe says something offensive or racist in conversation because, you know, kids, kids often don't have filters. How can a parent respond in that moment in a way that makes sense?
0: Yeah. I think the first thing the parent can do is ask questions. Like, you know, I'm wondering why you said that, or what made you think that, or why do you think that's true? Um, And here where the child got the idea, I want to use as just a simple example I have two sons. And when my oldest son was about four, he told me that only men could be doctors. Ooh. He was talking to his mother, Dr. Tatum. Right? <laughs> and, and I said, well, why do you think that's true? And he began to list all the medical doctors he had encountered, all of whom were male. And I said, well, I get that. But you know, I know some female doctors and my doctor's female. And you, you see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. um, exploring the child's logic, you know, and then countering with the accurate information. In the case of a racist remark, maybe a child makes, maybe they've heard someone say it and you can question, you know, where did you get that information? But then you can say, you know, some people might think that, but I don't or we don't. And here's why we think others, you know, here's what I think. And here's what I know. Here's the information I have. And then maybe encourage the child not to repeat what they said.
1: For parents who don't feel equipped to start those conversations, specifically white parents who are nervous because they feel like, I, I don't I don't really know how to ask the right question. Are there resources you can point people to to help them?
0: There are lots of resources, particularly online. And I want to make reference to um, a TEDx talk I gave, which mm-hmm. is titled, Is My Skin Brown Because I Drank Chocolate Milk? And it's about a conversation I had with my son when he was three based on something that happened to him at preschool. A white child said to him, your skin is brown because you drink too much chocolate milk. And he came home and asked me if that was true. I then, of course, it's not true. (laughs) And I then said to him, no, your skin is brown because you have something in your skin called melanin. Everybody has some. The more you have, the browner your skin is. At your school, you are the kid with the most. He was happy with that uh, answer. And of course it was accurate, but I wondered what had happened to the white child to ask the question. Did he ever get that question answered? And I use that as an example to say, you know, that video, it's a 13 minute talk. Anybody can watch it on YouTube, but there are lots of other resources with parents and psychologists like myself and uh, Dr. is giving advice. Uh, and so you don't just have to read books. Of course, there's plenty of books to read. Um, I would recommend my own, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race, which has specific information about how to talk to young children about race. Um, but there are many resources, many more today than there were before. So there's no reason a white parent can't embrace the process of educating him or herself if they're ready to take that on.
1: And we'll tweet out links to both the TED Talk and to your book at WBEZ Reset. You know, doctor Hurd Herd-Garris, I want to be sure that we don't make this just a conversation about how we feel. Um, You've studied the implications of macro and micro level stressors and how they affect children's health. What kinds of effects does racism have on a child's health and well-being?
2: Thank you for that question, because I think when um, we talk about racism, everyone's like, you know, doesn't realize that it really does get under our skin. And it's not only black and brown children, but um, all children may be um, victims of that exposure. And as I was saying before about the secondhand exposure to racism even though you're experiencing it secondhand, you can certainly experience firsthand the mental health impacts. So, for example, there have been studies that have shown that children that have been exposed to vicarious racism or the secondhand racism are more likely to have insults to their self-esteem more likely to use um, substances such as drugs or alcohol and have anxiety and depression, but also from a behavioral standpoint. So, exposure to this racism can perhaps have children be more aggressive or disruptive, but also on the other end of the spectrum, they can become more withdrawn and isolated. And so these are some of the behavioral and mental health aspects we've seen. We need many more studies to look at the physical health impacts as well, but there are studies that have seen differences in weight for those that have been exposed to um, racism as a whole, but also vicarious racism. And so we're, we're gonna need much more, many more studies to understand the true implications of health, but we are certainly seeing at least mental and some physical health um, implications right now.
1: Dr. Tatum, I-, I wanna ask a slightly different question. You know, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so we aren't necessarily spending as much time together But for parents who are in communities or in families where racist language may be used um, and they may find themselves in a situation where a family member, perhaps a beloved family member, is expressing racist sentiment, how, how as a parent do you step in and interrupt that, especially if it's happening within earshot of your child?
0: I think this is a really great question. And for many people, it's probably the hardest instance because they don't want to rupture a relationship with a loved one. And yet they don't want to pass on to another generation these negative attitudes. I sometimes suggest that people use what I call the 3F strategy. What does that mean? Felt, found, feel. You know, I felt that way. I used to think that way. But then I found out how wrong I was. I learned this information. And I now feel it's really important not to pass on those attitudes to my own kids. So let's agree that we won't use that language when we're here.
1: I'm going to give you the last word here, Dr. Hurd-Garris. Any last words of advice?
2: know, my last words of advice to parents out there is give kids hope. You know, give kids hope for the future. Let them know on both sides, on multiple sides, that kid that parents and adults love them and are, are fighting for them. It's always it's not always easy to see, but we if we can all join together and, and work to fight racism, our world will be better today than it was yesterday.
1: And that's it for today's Reset. This week, we'll continue covering the stories and answering the questions that matter to you. If you want to share your story or you have a question about protests in Chicago, the city's Phase 3 reopening, or how local officials are handling the COVID-19 pandemic, leave us a voicemail at 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. But that's it for Reset. Stay healthy, stay safe, and let's talk again tomorrow.